The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. If necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, dissatisfaction is perhaps the mother of innovation. When he co-founded OkerBio in 2019, Dr. Quinn Will's dissatisfaction ran deep and it ran wide. Quinn earned his MD at Witwatersrand, a master's in computational biology at Cambridge, and both a master's in applied and computational mathematics and a PhD in statistical genomics at Oxford. In parallel with his PhD, he founded a pharmacogenomics company, then completed his postdoc at the Mayo Clinic. Then he was a single-cell genomics career development fellow at Oxford before joining Novo Nordisk as head of cellular and systems genomics at its research center in Oxford. Those collective experiences pulled back the curtain on the sources of Dr. Will's dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with our industry's surface-level applications of computational biology, our archaic translational models, and the expensive and high-risk approach to clinical trials. So, in 2019, Quinn launched Ochre Bio with the intention of challenging these paradigms. And as if those big swings weren't enough, the company's focus is on one of the biggest swings a new biopharma can take on liver diseases, which affect billions of people globally. I'm Matt Pillar. This is the Business of Biotech. And on today's show, we're going one-on-one with the brilliant and brazen Dr. Quinn Wills. Quinn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, so I, I I gave the sensational highlights in my in my setup of the conversation, but that's where I want to start. I want to start <laughs> by digging into some of the some of the details around your thought process uh, and what inspired you when you decided to launch Ochre. Um, and, and, you know, re- really kind of get into some of the detail around those three challenges that you sought to address. So let's start with, uh, let's start with your general motivation. You know, I outlined your background, uh, but what was sort of the general motivating factor in saying, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go co-found this uh, Ochre Bio, a, a biopharmaceutical company. Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about it is, you know, in in that trajectory, which you painted very nicely, thank you so much, Uh, (laughs) feeling very good about my life right now, uh, is, you know, there's a love story and a love-hate story. You know, for me, the love story has always been of a disease. Even when I trained clinically and I did my genetics degree in South Africa, I was very focused on uh, alcoholic uh, so alcoholism, and that sort of got me thinking a lot around alcoholic liver disease. It's a huge issue in South Africa because of apartheid structures and poverty driving uh, really, um, really troublesome drinking patterns in South Africa. And so that really got me in, ultimately got me into the liver space. And I've kept pulling the liver space all the way through. As you mentioned, started a liver pharmacogenomics company. 
oof, about 17 years ago. And, and even when I sort of set up the advanced genomics department for Nova Nordisk, was very focused on liver and this epidemic that we're seeing now in chronic liver disease. So that, that's been the love story. I think the love-hate story has been data. Like a lot of geneticists, uh, sort of in the, at the turn of the millennium, uh, I I was wowed by the Human Genome Project and really wanted to get into this game. I, I began to, I don't want to say began to drink the Kool-Aid because that sounds a bit disrespectful, but really yeah. began to drink the Kool-Aid of big data and big biological digitization and how that's going to change everything. So, And that sort of triggered then uh, me getting into more computers and maths and, and eventually sort of machine learning and statistical learning approaches in sort of big genomic data sets. And I reached a point, I think, uh, particularly with, with my, my position at Novo, and this is not finger pointing to anything in particular in Novo, but um, started reflecting on where I'm seeing the impact in, in big data. If uh, you know we're doing all this big discovery, only in human discovery, I should say, mm-hmm. only to have to validate in animal models, and then still not really have an easy way to do clinical trials. You know, uh, yeah, liver trials, particularly if we're talking about certain elements of liver trials, for example, if you're thinking about scarring or cirrhosis, yeah, this is easily $100 million, that sort of trial. And um, these are very high risk, very long, very expensive trials. And so the thinking there was, right, well, um, this is not going to, I'm not going to solve this within a pharma setting. Could we do this on our own? And that's really the beginnings of Okabio to be a company that really takes on those three hurdles. The whole value chain in many ways is focus on generating vast quantities of very actionable, rich data, the kind of data that quite nicely complements modern genetics. And we can speak to a little bit of that if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Also then focus on a validation pipeline that's not overly reliant on animal models. Animal models, the average mouse lives two years. It takes probably 20 years for the average person to develop cirrhosis. The applicability of short-lived mammalian models to long-lived humans is is sketchy at best and then once we have that think about how do you trials that we can take on as a small company that de-risk the biology before we invest in even bigger trials and that's that's us in a nutshell yeah yeah and they i mean and they're all related is it is it a chron and i want to we'll we'll dig into each of those uh, i guess three three big hurdles um in a minute but is it is it is there a chronology to the approach or is it sort of do, do, do addressing these three things happen in parallel there's a hell of a lot of building the jumbo while it's taking off you're mm, <laughs> starting yeah. a biotech but yeah. there has been a certain chronology to it you know when we uh when we the seed funding in our company helped us set up some of the early discovery, our Series A funding really helped now drive a lot of the validation pipeline and setting up labs in Taiwan and New York to really uh, flesh that out properly. And now, as we look towards Series B next year, that will be about going to clinic. Yeah. All right. So I want let, to let's start with the computational part. Uh, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, tell me, is what. Is liver disease a great place to exercise some big data 
computational tool chops because it's so prevalent and the numbers are so vast in terms of the patient population um, or, or not? Like why, why, why was it time in liver disease to say, you know what, we, we can, we can, uh, we can build and, uh, and apply and leverage some computational tools. It'll make a difference. So I think the original motivation has been my passion for liver disease and the incredible prevalence of what's going on. Uh, well, so before you before you go any further with that, you you mentioned that your 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 uh, your passion for liver disease. I just want to ask you a, a sort of a follow up on that. You said that was that 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 uh, that arose during your time in, in South Africa because it was a because it was affecting the the society generally there. So then it was all about alcoholic well alcoholism and thinking about some of the genetics around fetal alcohol syndrome and, and yeah. metabolism in mothers and sort of what what could be driving patients at risk for developing uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, for example. And that sort of got me into the whole thinking about uh, an incredible nature versus nurture dynamic that happens in liver and liver disease and how that plays into the story ultimately of how we react to different drugs. So liver tox with different drugs, which is a big limiting factor, which triggered my first company. And now this big epidemic that we're seeing with fatty liver disease, which is basically we're all getting older, we're a lot more sedentary than our grandparents used to be, mm-hmm. and we're all a little bit more heavy set than our grandparents yeah. used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So back to the question about uh, the application of computational in that in that population. So for us, whatever we take on in liver, it has to tick those three boxes. We have to be able to see where we can generate an, a large amount of data that gives us an unfair advantage. We have to be able to see the tractable and very translatable models that we can develop in the space uh, to to really interrogate the biology. And then we have to be able to see the kind of trials we want to do. And thankfully, liver allows for a lot of that. Yeah, the data generation space, you're right. There's a lot of it going on. And it didn't take... I don't want to say it didn't take too much effort. It took a lot of effort, but uh, we could get up and going very quickly with the type of biobank samples that we needed to really understand the, the, the sort of natural range of disease in the population out there. The other thing that's really nifty uh, from a research point of view about liver disease is that it's very visual. You can see a lot in histology. So it gave us a very nice connection between doing the kind of single cell and spatial, the, you know, the very deep a high resolution genomics that we like to do to map genes to cells, we can then in the same data map that to histology. And then as one would traditionally do, map histology to blood and clinical trace. So it really allowed us this very visual nature of liver disease and the histology behind us gave us a lovely hook connecting stuff that's happening at a cellular level to what we see happening in patients. Mm-hmm. You are uh, in, in order to, uh, to, to apply computational tools to the data that would be so readily available should you develop a means of collecting it and, and sorting it out and making sense of it. Um, but you've got, you've got an audit, you've got to have some chops there. So tell me about where you, I mean, obviously as I, I kind of rattled off your academic, uh, your academic CV there. So you've got some computational science and, and mathematic um, uh, experience from, from school. Uh, what along the journey has transpired both in, in your mind and, and in the tech world that have enabled the the collection and application of this data? Oh, that's a, that's a goodie. I think, yeah. oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think medicine helped me 
recognize what are the good questions to ask. I think my data computational sort of machine learning training helped me ask good questions in a good way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest learnings I feel I've had in my sort of industry career has been that in the big data space, I think there are a lot of very talented scientists spending far too much time obsessed about big data for big data's sake, you know, new technologies to map even more at even a higher resolution at cheap, you know, at half the price. And um, one of the things that I've had to learn very early on in my career is that this is fantastic and it's great and we should be doing those things, but you have to focus on actionable data. If doing all this discovery doesn't help you make a clear decision as to what you want to take forward into validation and doing validate, you know, the, the kind of experiments you run at validation, if those don't help you make clear decisions about what you want to take forward to clinical trial, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, the, you founded the company 2019. Uh, from 2019, just to follow on to that sort of uh, uh, the, the application of computational tools in biotech. From 2019 to now, so it's, you know, end of summer 2023, what's changed in terms of like investor appetite and potentially partner appetite and even the the computational tool landscape in those few years since you started the company? I think the obvious answer to that is enthusiasm for AI, right? Yeah. In the space at the moment. The way I, I like to explain it is if if web browsers help the average person to understand what the internet is, you know, when, when the first web browser came out, the average Joe was, ah, this is the internet. Generative AI and the chat GPT uh, phenomenon of the world has helped us understand how important AI can be to really augment what we do. So that's triggered a lot of enthusiasm in the space and arguably a bit of a hype cycle for us. It always boils down to, so, so of course we love it. We're AI at heart in everything we do. Yeah. But again, it's always got to tick boxes for us. When we use AI and when we use the evolving AI that we have used from 2019 to 2023, it has to tick three boxes for us. Does it allow us to do something better than what we've already done? It doesn't matter how sexy it is. If it's not better, then is it is it really worth the effort? Mm -hmm. Does it make something cheaper or does it make it faster? And when it ticks at least two of those three boxes, we become interested. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Andrew Satz, uh, recently from uh, Andrew Satz from Evolve. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Andrew, mm -hmm. but... Uh, he, he threw, he tossed out on me the, the quote this is, I, I think this is a play on like an old, uh, an old cliche, but he said in biotech right now, AI is akin to sex in high school. He's like, <laughs> he's like everybody, he's like everybody who's, he's like everybody who says they're doing it, isn't really doing it. And the people who are really are doing it, aren't talking about it. Right. <laughs> well, I, I will take that. I like that very much. I think it's yeah. I think it's funny and it's probably it's probably true to some degree. I, I know that okra is 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 the people, you know, you're you're the guy who's doing it but not talking about it. I get it. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's true. It's because you realize I think it's one of those things where uh the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And the truth, the same is the truth, yeah. The same truth applies to a lot of AI techniques. So yes, when I get asked, are we using generative AI? Because that is 
That is the big question right now. Yes, we are using generative AI. We love it for our imaging uh, pipelines. It's uh, it's very you know we use a, a form of it called self supervised deep neural networks, which where the algorithm can learn without human supervision, and that's an incredibly powerful approach. That's the good story, and we are really utilizing it. That's the good side of the story. The downside is the reality is when it comes to interpreting what we call human interpretable features. So what a histopathologist will look at, that's fat buildup, that's this, that, that. It still struggles to outperform the more traditional machine learning approaches like segmentation approaches to pull out those features. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll probably touch back on computational shortly, Um, but I want to move on to the translation models. Uh, Challenge number two that Oker set out to, uh, to tackle. Um, so, you know, the, the two-year lifespan versus the 20-year progression of, of, of liver disease, Mm. the point kind of speaks for itself, but, Mm. but, but also why not mice? Yeah. Like, also why not mice and what, what, uh, what, what are the alternatives that Oker is exploring? Sure. So perhaps one thing, one sort of point of clarification on that Mm. is that, I'll walk you through the type of models we develop, but all of the human models we do, we only run them for about five days, sometimes two weeks, some of the some of the models. So these are very short-term models, and, and we, we like to think quite good short-term models. But if you're developing long-acting therapies, which we're doing with the type of sRNAs we're doing, the regulator is always, and rightly so, is always going to want to understand long-term safety long-term effects and for that you know there really is at the moment no way of getting around going to animal models what we're saying as a company and as a team is that relying on animal models for internal conviction that action that you need to take you know i spoke about actionable data relying on animal models solely to help you make that decision is a bad idea uh, particularly with chronic disease and i don't think many would disagree with that I suppose the the devil in the detail then is how exactly do you do this? And well, I think we'll 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 shout once we get very good results, hopefully coming out of mm-hmm. the clinical trials. But for us, that's meant setting up three biology teams. So we have a biology team in Oxford that looks like a traditional validation team, but only works in primary human cells. So basically working with the components of the liver that they mix together to build up parts of the liver, you know, to really tease apart the basic biology of what's going on. And that approach is fantastic because it gives you that flexibility, but of course is the most removed from true physiology or pathophysiology of what's going on in the liver. So we have that team. We also then have our team in Taipei, which is the only team in the world that is able to take, and by that I mean routinely take at scale, biopsies of diseased livers and turn each one of those biopsies into about 50 slices. And then we culture these slices, almost like little mini livers, micro livers. And these are now disease that are coming from patients with disease where we can now perturb them, image them, single cell sequence them to find out what's going on. That has less flexibility than what the team in Oxford do, but now we're getting one step closer to really what's what's going on in the liver. Mm -hmm. The other biology team, the New York team, takes discarded donor livers, human donor livers. We put them on machines. We've optimized how to keep these livers alive for five days, and then we test out our final therapies 
in these livers to see what we can shift the needle on over five days. None of these are perfect. Even a, a human liver on a machine is not a whole human liver. What we are saying is that this helps us fail faster. We can really see what's not going to work in a human being much more so than if we were just doing mouse models. Yeah. What's the, uh, so you, 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 uh, you preface that commentary with the regulatory, uh, demand or requirement. Um, what, what is the regular regulatory reaction if, if you've seen one yet mm-hmm. to, to, to these approaches? Yeah, the two things that maybe your listeners need to be aware of is that one is that you know, the regulator is going to want what the regulator wants, and and you have to abide by that. And there are good reasons for why you have to abide by mm-hmm. that, and we will abide by that. Yeah. The interesting change that has happened, and it's the effects are not going to be immediate, is that the FDA, we, we've had the FDA Modernization Act in the US last year, which now means animal testing is not required to go to clinic. So for the first time in history, you can really take a therapy all the way through to market to patient using human-only data. So there's a really exciting journey now to be had around what kind of models can we use to replace animal uh, models. And if you think a little bit further down the line, what really excites me about this change in regulation is that we could also start thinking about Perfusion studies, for example, as running the clinical trial before you run the clinical trial. So it helps you do things like trial design. You can select your patient population that's going to work for your therapeutic before you go on to the big trial. So it's a, it's a very exciting space. There's a long journey to be had here, but it's, it's really grand to see that the FDA has spearheaded this and other regulators are following quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider like as it relates to that? Um... Modernization Act and the industry's acceptance of it, a- embrace of it. Uh, do you consider Oker sort of pioneering in that in that regard, like pu- push pushing forward with its its ideas of what modernization might look like in that in that paradigm? Absolutely. So that's that's the game for us. Ultimately, is how can we, irrespective of what we take on, how can we maximize the use of human data? I I, I often. When I'm giving this type of talk to an audience, I often frame a lot of what we're discussing as how to use humans as the model. That's yeah. the question. You know, moving away from, so we have genetics now, but how do we really use the human as a model at a scientific level and at the regulatory level? What's that journey for us? Right. Okay. Well, you uh, you made a nice segue uh, into into the third hurdle, clinical trials. And clinical trials, like, you know, if, if I were to ask the open-ended question, well, what's the problem with current clinical trials? Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be unfair to you because it would be a long, long answer. Uh, unfair to our audience because we'd need to dedicate several shows to it. Um, but but you, you, you made a nice segue there as you were talking about the app, you know, sort of the, the, the building application of of your ideas towards improving clinical trials. So let's drill in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the difficulty, the expense, the the high risk of, of clinical trials, what, what makes you think that a startup company like Oker just around since 2019 can have an impact on that historical paradigm? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't be quite as bold as to say that we're, we're the ones who are going to break how everything works. Uh, there, there are lots of very open doors that we're really pushing on. For example, um platform trials we're finally there 
people are embracing platform trials, which is fantastic. And, and the kind of therapy that we develop, the modality we use, siRNA, I think plays very nicely into the concept of platform trials and the type of design we could ultimately do. I think for us, perhaps something that is, is not obvious to those who don't know the liver space is that if one in, let's, let's talk about, let's, let's focus on sort of Western countries. Um, it, depending on where you are, it's going to be one in four to one in three people now with fatty liver disease, right? So mm. again, you're older, you're slightly obese, yeah, you hate jogging. Uh, so now you have a fatty liver. So that's one in four and one in three three of us. That is what's driving a lot of what we see now in the in the big jump in cirrhosis and the need for liver transplants, etc. The flip side of that is that because so many of us have chronic liver disease, so many of us make for very poor liver donors. And so the demand is going up, but the supply is coming down in the transplant space. Because really, at the end of the day, the only definitive therapy when your liver fails is a transplant. And so for us as a company, part of thinking about how we can de-risk this problem is first focusing on the supply. So mm-hmm. we can take donor livers, put them on these machines, treat them with our therapy, outside of the body, so very de-risked, then transplant. So we're tackling the same biology, but very focused on improving outcomes or improving utilization of these poor livers. And then once we've de-risked that in a, in a what is a much shorter, much more tractable trial, that will give us sort of the big thumbs up to go, right, let's now switch over to the other side. Let's focus on the demand and patients living with chronic disease and invest in those bigger trials. We know that early stage biopharmas need support. Producing and scaling a biologic molecule is not easy. Companies with new or evolving programs need assistance every step of the way. Join us each week as we discuss all things emerging biotech, including regulatory, financing, and more. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics, from idea to injection. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. You admitted to me when we last spoke uh, that these ideas, these big ideas, the big, big, big swings uh, and and challenges to sort of the status quo. Um, I think you used the word stacking risk. You recognize that your company is, is stacking risk. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of complex uh, intellectual property, and we'll dig into that um, that that your your liver biopsy approach here in here in a minute too. But um, so the the question is, and I asked you sort of what the investor appetite is for computational. What has been the investor appetite for Ogre? I mean, you guys are doing some things that, uh, you know, a lot, yeah, you know, there there there's a yeah. a segment of the investment community that is comfortable laying money down, mm-hmm. um, in, in tried and true fields, and then mm-hmm. it's a special segment that is is going to look at a company like Ogre and, and be like, yeah, I mean, I I, I like that bold approach, and I'm going to bet on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just give me some color on that. Like what's the investment strategy look like 
And um, mm. how, how's the concept being received? Yeah, um, with cheers and booze at the same time, as you cheers might imagine. When you say booze, you're, yeah. you're playing that B-O-O-S, not B-O-O-Z-E, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, possibly all three, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we create the market and we resolve the market. Um, yeah, that, it has, it, it's, been, it's been a very, very difficult sell. You know, of course, people love the vision. But at the end of the day, you have to deliver. And I think for us, it comes back to that, that comment you made about stacking risk. And, and again, I will shout loudly once we have that first successful clinical trial. But here's how we think about the, the problem at the moment. Yeah, we, are, we are taking a, a lot of different types of risk. There's a lot of discovery risk, a lot of validation risk. There's a lot of clinical trial risk. And there's a lot of chemistry risk. You know, we have a, a huge oligotherapeutics lab in Oxford that's, that's making, innovating in the this, in this space for us. So how do we balance all of that? And it is a stacking risk problem. And whenever we take on a particular question or a particular you know, biology that we want to think about, we try very hard not to stack too much risk. So I'll give you an example. Last year, I feel one of the biggest breakthroughs our chemistry team had was figuring out how to very specifically target cancer cells in the liver, which was incredible. Uh, in, in the siRNA space, it's all about delivery. Well, there's a lot more to be had beyond that, but it, it, delivery is a, is a very big issue right now. How do you get that siRNA to the right cells? Yeah. And we hit on this idea, and it worked. Fantastic. Cancer really wasn't one of our core themes. We're more, you know, chronic liver disease is about metabolic dysfunction, chronic inflammation, fibrosis, scarring, cirrhosis, and then at the end, cancer. And, you know, a lot of primary liver cancers happen mm. in patients with cirrhosis. So we know it's there, but we haven't been thinking too much around it. But thankfully, we had a lot of ideas around cancer because of thinking about how to help cell survive. So instead of trying to bolt on the chemistry risk to one of our big discovery programs, we said, listen, this really opens up something where we can, because it's so specific to cancer cells, let's just find some targets we know would work really well in terms of blating the cells. And did that, and it worked beautifully in the sense of we can very specifically get to cancer cells. We can, uh, you know, and if, we, if it's not that specific, we see, uh, you know, we see the safety effects happening, but as you increase the specificity, you get the effect that you want. And we've done that some, as something slightly separate from our other pipelines where we're pushing through targets so that we're not sharing the risk across that. And so that is just, that's just one example of how I think we as a company like to think about very, I don't want to say we're not stacking risk because clearly we are, but how we are very carefully stacking the risk towards the clinic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do activities like that, exercises like that do in terms of your uh, indication strategy? Uh, you know, because I mean, I, I was going to ask you to sort of uh, color a little bit, color in a, a little bit on uh, what the patient and market opportunity looks like in, in liver disease in the in the near term. Obviously, there are several indications that you could pursue, and I, and I know that, uh, or at least I think Ochre is is still sort of sussing out like what its candidate uh, an indication pipeline might might look like. Um, but what? I, so I got yeah. Let, let, let me use a lot of words to ask a simple question. How is your how is your uh, how is your indication strategy shaping up at this point? 
Is it too early to say? I mean, no, no, no. I, I think it's a very good question. Uh, you know, so when we started off as a company, we had a few North Star ideas. You know, I, I do believe that it's very useful for biotechs to have a clear idea of focus as to where do we want to go with that. You know? Otherwise, we, we become, I know our phenotype very well, we become very distracted very easily with all our poise and all the lovely things we can do. So, so yeah, we okay. did start off the company with a very clear idea saying, right, we're first going to focus on metabolic and cellular resilience issues. So when I say cellular resilience, I basically mean how to stop cells from dying, you know, as happens in the transplant space, in liver cirrhosis, et cetera. And so, and we use that and, and the kind of indications we want to take on as our initial guide, you know, so for example, in the transplant setting, in decompensating patients with, with liver cirrhosis, et cetera. And we use that as an initial guide. As we matured a little bit as a company, we brought in a head of translation who has been doing a lot of work with us in terms of scoping out basically how we strategize our entire portfolio um, beyond just these, these lovely North Star ideas. And I think for, for us, what this has boiled down to is um, even though funding markets can be a bit weary of cancer right now, we do see cancer is a really interesting opportunity where we can make a big dent in the space. We really do like liver transplant trials uh, and it's a wide open space. Big Pharma doesn't want to touch transplants. It's it's really fantastic for a company like ourselves. And we can now see what kind of systemic trials we would like to take on. And, and there really is so much in the space right now. So much that people are not even perhaps aware of. You know, uh, I, know I know it's popular to think that viral hepatitis is largely a solved problem. It's not. There are a lot of people even on therapy who are still struggling with chronic viral hepatitis and are at high risk for eventually developing cirrhosis and cancer because there's this constant death of hepatocytes and liver cells happening. Yeah. So these are all things we believe um, we'll be able to shift the needle on, that we will be able to do trials on, and are going to be pushing forward for our Series B funding. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, you, you alluded to, you know, we, we sort of been sprinkling some process conversation in here, uh, and you alluded to uh, the the biopsy um, exercise there, the, the biopsy initiative. Uh, I, I want to learn more about that. Like you have this novel approach to liver biopsies uh, to to enable your pre preclinical studies. G give us more on that. Where, where are they coming from? What are you looking for? What are you doing with them? And, and how is it informing your go forward plan? Yeah. So. Let me let me generalize that question again back to back to the big the, the AI question. You know, for us, because the biopsy question really relates to how we think about AI in many ways. So AI for us has to be better, cheaper, faster. I'll, I'll give you examples of each, perhaps. So for us, better is you know a lot of AI techniques are fantastic at picking out highly non-linear relationships and very complex data sets that traditional mathematics or statistical approaches and human experts on their own just can't do. So it's it's really great for that. And we use that both with our genomic data and, and our imaging data. So that, that's one big application for us. We also use AI to make things cheaper. So one thesis we have as a company, and again, we'll We'll see how it all pans out once we go to clinic. But one thesis we have as a company is that we 
don't want to be doing uh we 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 don't want to be doing uh big screens and over simplistic models so there, there are a lot of computational biology companies out there that are banking on the idea that they set up huge factories of essentially robots running very very simple cell-based models imaging sequencing perturbing every gene so really brute force approaches now those are fantastic and i'm sure we're going to see some wonderful successes coming out of those mm-hmm. i really have to question how valid those approaches are for chronic diseases and chronic liver disease in our case where you really need complex models the complex human models so we want the complex human models and they are expensive but we also want to achieve scale. We want that kind of scale. And so for us, that's where AI comes in. And, and one of the ideas that we're having really great success on right now is how do we start running a screen in more complex models, train the AI, AI learns from the data, and then starts making predictions. And then we test those predictions. So rather than just doing a big brute force, we're quickly, it's almost like rapid prototyping. We're very just quickly trying out ideas to much more quickly converge on the biology of interest. So that is a, you know, in effect makes what we do a lot cheaper. So we we love it for that. Mm -hmm. The biopsy imaging story started off as a fast notion and then thankfully started ticking a lot of other boxes for us. You know, we, um, as I suggested, we process a lot of imaging data. You know, our first big discovery project was spatially sequencing a thousand human livers, imaging each liver multiple times, you know, from HE to trichome stains to pass, uh, and then of course wanting to analyze these images. That is beyond the realm of a traditional uh, histopathologist. That's a lot of data to look at. And so for us, having algorithms to really speed that up was quite important. And we spent a lot of time and effort as a team, uh, developing tools internally, playing with other vendor tools, really trying to get our head around what works. What we have also found uh, with the, with imaging as a space is it's had other advantages. It doesn't just speed things up using AI approaches. It also helps standardize. You know, mm. The average histopathologist cannot agree with him or herself from morning to afternoon. And that's very <laughs> problematic in the liver space when a lot of clinical trial endpoints are basically, basically biopsy endpoints. So having that kind of standardization rate. The third big lesson we're learning out of this is that uh, these AI approaches are really good at spotting things that humans can't see. You know, and you know, so what we think about is latent features in our data. You know, the things that humans will go, oh, that's obviously fat buildup. That's a clump of inflammatory cells. But the algorithms are spotting other features in the histology that's clearly mapping to clinical traits and other things of interest that nobody's identified before. And really noodling on that problem and how that might give us sort of an unfair advantage in the space, I think is very interesting for us. Has that been a challenge uh, as the leader of the company? Um, you know, you mentioned that you put a lot of time and effort into that, and that it, that has paid off. Uh, it, it's it's yielded multiple points of enlightenment, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which which uh, inform a go forward plan. Um, but is, is it particularly challenging for a, a a leader like you and a company like this to balance the I, I guess the effort and initiative that goes into as you put it, sort of noodling around in those tools, looking for insights with speed, 
progress, like investor expectations, you know, got got to got to get closer to naming uh, a candidate and and putting a pipeline together. Like, just give me a little bit of like your your mentality on like balancing that inquisitive person yeah. that you are with, uh, you know, creating a business around a product. So, so I made I made uh, this joke. I, I made a joke on this topic uh, at a panel discussion I was giving a few days ago, saying that I walk around with a giant wooden spoon and smack people when they're getting distracted. <laughs> so that's my job to go. No, 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 no. That's that's lovely, but not now. Um, no, it's it's yeah. A lot of if I had to summarize a lot of the intent behind us as a company is is learning how to fail fast with good data. Mm-hmm. That's you know that is and that's yeah. not a million miles from the kind of rhetoric that we've had for a long time in the in the, in the therapeutic space. So yeah. if we're going to fail fast, learn to fail fast. Don't hold on to ideas forever. Uh, yeah. And and it's tough. I'm not going to pretend that we get it right all the time because it's very sometimes it's very difficult to know where the value of something is is going to come from. Um, but. If you've tried it for one quarter and the results are not great, and you've tried it for a second quarter, still not great, probably time to kill it. Mm-hmm. One thing that we found uh, really useful as a company in terms of, you know, you mentioned operations and how you do things is we've set up a separate team, which we call XLab, very, very California. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole idea of XLab is... This, uh, this was prior to yeah, Elon, Elon Musk <laughs> rebranding Twitter, I'm assuming. <laughs> I was just, you know, we take notes just all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the, the whole notion of XLab is to have a team that's dedicated to the newling, to the de-risking. You know, if we see somebody out there with a new technology and we want to collaborate with, it, with them on that, can we play around with it? Can we de-risk it mm-hmm. before we hand it over to the rest of the team? And I think that formula has helped, uh, has really, really helped us as a company. Yeah. Um, is it, if you kind of characterized, uh, you know, you, you talked about tra- your excitement around the transplant space, um, or would you envision a commercial stage ochre as competitive, like looking to trans <laughs> to, to, to transplant and not to displace, I should displace the transplant, mm-hmm. uh, space or to compete with, the pharmaceutical products on the market for liver disease or both is it just a yes yeah i think it's both really it's like i said a few minutes ago i think for us it's about first focusing on the supply issue Mm -hmm. so that is Mm -hmm. directly improving outcomes and utilization in the transport space and then ultimately dealing with the demand issue which will hopefully one day eventually do away with the need for transplant altogether yeah all right. I want to shift gears here a little bit, being conscious of our time, because I have a few questions that I've been uh, I've been looking forward to asking you around sort of your management philosophy, because I'm, I'm here to tell you, like anyone who's either watching this uh, on YouTube or listening in their car on the way to work is thinking they're, they're, they're thinking, man, that that Dr. Wills guy, he's just seems like a really nice guy. And I've talked to you a couple of times now, and I think you're a really nice guy. But the last time we talked, you told yeah. me a little bit about your management philosophy. And I came away from that conversation thinking, man, he's got to be hard to work for. 
<laughs> I told you I carry a very big wooden spoon. <laughs> I, I know, I know you're you're validating my concern. No, it's not it's not concern, but uh, you did share with me um, some of your philosophies around value based innovation. Now, value we talk about value based innovation like in this big broad general sense in, in life sciences, and it's easy to go like, oh, we're talking about you know patient value, health outcomes, right, stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about value based innovation and a far more like fundamentally like a far more fundamental uh, context when you talk about it. So tell us what it means to you. Yeah, so. I'll start off by saying, I firstly, I can't take full credit for this. I, I, I one of the things I was, I've been very blessed to have is a co-founder who shares this notion with me that a lot of starting a company is about having the right values and norms and how you focus on ideas. And we really settled on these three laws that I'm going to tell you about mm-hmm. before we even set up what the science is going to look like, et cetera. And yeah. these three, we call them laws. I tend to think of values as personal aspirations. Laws are no, you know, or you'll get smacked with a big wooden spoon. And <laughs> and they really speak to what I've over many years of running teams feel are three of the big failure points of teams, particularly very transdisciplinary teams as we are. And the first law is um, uh, Clark's law or or probably Clark's third law, really, that says, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the idea behind that is to help the teams, particularly on the European side of things, where we're a lot more risk averse, to understand that we are we are here to be very bold in our innovation and ideas. Don't fear failure. This is what we set up to do. If you want to do incremental, go work for a company. This is going to sound very rude. We go work for a comfortable academic lab. Uh, this is not the model that we're playing. We're really pushing hard to push things to the next level. So, so there's that whole idea of be bold in your thinking and how, how you want to do things. Law number one. Mm-hmm. Law number two is uh, Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And I suppose if the first law is about don't fear failure, the second law is you are going to fail all the time. Yeah. Every day. It is fundamental to our learning process in science. We, we learn by experimentation. And most of what we do goes wrong, and particularly when it's in a very messy biotech space and you're building the jumbo while it's taking off. The essence of that for us is it's not an excuse ever. Do not come to a meeting complaining about that. What have you learned? What's your plan B? How fast can you recover from this and move on? That's the essence behind behind that. You know, how to turn failure into success very quickly yeah. is the essence of that that second law. And then we have our third law uh, from Will Wheaton. So uh, many of us will know Will Wheaton as uh, from Star Trek, I think Wesley Crusher. He's also a very big gamer uh, and really in his adult life, I think many people know him for his, for his involvement in the gaming space. And he has this law called don't be a dick which we love. And there, you know, and this is not about baking cakes and, and being lovely to each other and, and talking pleasantries about the weather. This speaks to really the third mode of failure that I've seen uh, ha- often happening in very transdisciplinary teams is tribalism. You, It's so difficult to know when other teams fail 
the, the intricacies of what's going on. And when times get tough, it's all too easy for the chemists to get angry with the biologists who have not set up the models correctly, who don't understand why the computationists are taking far too long to get the analysis back to them. Uh, you know, and this happens all the time. It's such a natural human trait to want to blame the other. And so yeah. for us, that's the, the essence behind that third law of, of that is not allowed. It is really not allowed. And doesn't matter how brilliant you are as a scientist, if you cannot abide by that third law, we will ask you to go be a pretty flower somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That third law, you know, you, you the the illustration you gave around blame and specifically, you know, wet lab versus sort of computational. Uh, I say versus because sometimes I suppose it can come to that, but um, to to avoid that. I'm curious about your 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 take on that. I've had multiple conversations with biotech leaders who are playing in computational who have said like um, adversity aside or blame aside yeah. from day one, it's a very difficult thing, super challenging to integrate those two departments yeah. and those you know those two personas, um, yeah. which I think would probably go a long way toward cutting off any of that you know potential to be a dick <laughs> right <laughs> cutting that off from the from the get-go so so just give me a little color on that like what do you what what have you done mm -hmm. uh organizationally to marry those two sort of disciplines so when i say the word, word transdisciplinary i'm being i'm saying that with intent i have not said multidisciplinary multidisciplinary is let's just put different phenotypes in the same room together and make them talk yeah transdisciplinary is Let's ensure that people can speak the same language, that you have enough of an understanding of what the other is doing to be able to communicate with them and be able to understand where the weaknesses are. So to, to make that even more specific, there are no wet lab, dry lab in OCA. They are just scientists. Everybody is expected, expected to be a biologist. Computationists need to understand the biology and speak to the biology. They just come with a different set of tools versus the cell and molecular biologists. And I've been often quoted within the company as, for example, telling the wet lab biologists that if you want a promotion in OCA, you have to learn to code. And the vast majority of our experimental scientists now can code mm. and can analyze their own data before they go to the computational biologists with more elevated questions than they would have if they just threw their data over. Yeah, I I love that in a in a market uh, that is challenging to find good help, right? Like talent is is it's it's challenging to find good talent, especially um, transdisciplinary talent uh, or even multidisciplinary disciplinary before they're subject to your philosophy. Uh, do 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 those sorts of standards further challenge the effort at Oker to attract talent at that level? Like you say, hey. You know, you're a great, uh, great sign. You've done great academic work. I love your previous experience. You're going to have to learn to code. And they're like, I'm not learning how to code. Yeah. I'm a scientist. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and again, we've had, we've had this where people come on and after six months, like, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to be this tough. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. I can't had hopes that I would just hand over my data to somebody else to look after, for example. Um, and, and those people have left, you know, um, on good terms, but they have left. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I know we're running short on time, so I'm going to wrap it up here, but, uh, I, I just want to get I, one last question. You, you're an advocate for, for, you know, quote unquote, founder led, uh, mm -hmm. biotechs. What does that mean to you and why is it important? 
Um, so what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean the arrogance of founders know everything, right? That that I need to be very clear on. Uh, I am I am very blessed to be standing on the shoulders of giants. There are I have so many smart people around me. My average day is is a severe case of imposter syndrome. So I need to be very. <laughs> I find that pretty hard to believe. I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about imposter syndrome? Let, let's talk about me. I dropped out of AP Bio my senior year of high school. I have an English degree, and I spend my time talking to guys like you. That's a, that's you know you just <laughs> and you're pulling you're pulling it off so great. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, arguable. It's, it's and there is that there really is that there is a lot about having smarter people around you and biotech is not the same as tech we do need people who've been there done that because we're putting medicines in patients we can't move fast and break things that's not allowed uh so there is an element of that however and there's the small asterisk however to this i do feel that if you're playing in the space of biotech that i call tough tech uh, so, you know, there's a lot of variations on what biotech is, right? People talk about tech bio and, and in very different flavors. Where I just consider us a science company that is using a lot of biotech and technology tech bio uh, to make therapies, and stacking a lot of risk, as you've said. So, so we're in tough tech because we really, there's a, there's a lot going on at any one time and there's a lot to follow and a lot of very difficult decisions to make. My belief is that uh, those kind of decisions are best made by very empowered founders who know what they're doing in the space. And so my encouragement to a lot of VCs out there who have this idea of this is really interesting, we'll invest, but then we're going to parachute in uh, a C-suite is to maybe think about how you can empower those founders to really lead that company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot. I mean, we, we could go much further on that. And I'd like to, I'd like to have you back on, uh, you're, you're a blast to talk to. And I feel like there's so much more that we could, oh, we could dig into that would be valuable to, to our audience. So we'll make some plans. Uh, we'll make some plans to get back together again, but in the meantime, I'll let you off the hook for now. I really appreciate you coming on. It's a fascinating story, a fascinating company. Thank you. Um, yeah. That's really been an absolute blast. That's, that's an hour that's gone by very fast. Thank you. I know it does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we need to do it again. So thanks Quinn. That's Ochre Bio co-founder and CSO, Dr. Quinn Wills. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online with support from Cytiva, which demonstrates its support to new and emerging biopharma companies at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with biotech execs like Dr. Wills, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast. Sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Be sure to leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>